I want to begin this morning with a reading from a newspaper report. Tucson, Arizona. A shooting near Tucson occurred on January the 8th, 2011. Nineteen people were shot, six of them fatally, during a meeting U.S. Representative Gabriel Giffords was holding with members of her constituency in a supermarket parking lot. Those killed in the incident included United States District Court for the District of Arizona Chief Judge John Roll and one of Representative Giffords Stafford. News reports claim the target of the attack was Giffords, representing Arizona's 8th Congressional District. She was shot through the head at point-blank range, and her medical condition was initially described as critical. A 22-year-old Tucson man, Jared Lee Loeffner, was arrested at the scene. <clears throat> Federal prosecutors have filed five charges against him, including the attempted assassination of a member of Congress. Those charges carry the possibility of the death penalty. Court filings include notes allegedly handwritten by Loeffner indicating he planned to assassinate Giffords. The motive for the shooting remains unclear as the suspect has not cooperated with authorities and has, in fact, invoked his right to remain silent. Psalm 91, beginning in verse 1. Shall we read together for a moment? <clears throat> He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. For he will give his angels charge concerning you, verse 11, and he will guard you in all of your ways. Ladies and gentlemen, if this passage of Scripture communicates anything, it is telling us that God promises to be with us during the darkest of days and the darkest of times. And we need that reassurance because life is hard and sometimes life gets even harder and more difficult. Do the numbers nine... One one nine eleven still mean anything to you? That date, September the eleventh and two thousand and one, will forever strike a responsive chord in the heart of every American who is old enough to remember. Because the evil of that day had such a monumental impact upon the heart and the soul of our people that there are no words to describe the feelings that most of us had on that occasion. We could use the word shock to describe our emotion of that morning, but it was more than that. We could use the word outrage, but it went beyond that. We could use the word 
fear, but it was a, it was a kind of fear with a depth of which we have never experienced before. It was such a terrifying day that it stunned an entire nation into silence. We didn't know what to say. We didn't know how to say it. And so for an entire day, an entire nation sat in silent shock. Do you remember? Do you remember that day? There are some days that you never forget where you were and what you were doing when you heard the news. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, it is the same terrifying silence that grips us again and again and again when we hear the latest report of another senseless tragedy and senseless shooting. And as a result, names that before we were not that familiar with have become very common in our vocabulary. Names like Columbine and Jonesboro and Virginia Tech and Fort Hood and Tucson. Suddenly images come to our mind of innocent people People just like you and I going about their day-to-day business gunned down for no sensible reason. And we scratch our heads and we begin to wonder why these things happen. But you cannot wonder very long because there will be another news account of another senseless tragedy. And it doesn't happen in far-off places in big cities like Washington, D.C. and New York. It happens all over. It doesn't matter where you are or where you live. You can be at work. You can be at school. You can be in a shopping center parking lot, minding your own business. And you can become the victim of senseless violence. So I ask you the question this morning, where is the sense in senseless Tragedy. And how do we make sense of what doesn't make sense? How do we put the pieces of that puzzle together? Let me suggest to you this morning that the problem is not that something bad happens to innocent people. Because that happens every day. Here's an automobile that is traveling down the interstate and suddenly the, uh, th- there is a blowout on one of the tires. It skids off a bridge, goes down an embankment, lands upside down in a river, and a family of four drowns in a terrible accident. And yet accidents like that happen regularly. But the problem is they happen so randomly. And we're left asking the unanswerable question. And that's why. Why did they have to be on that road? And why did the tire have to blow out at that particular moment? And why were they on that bridge? And why them? But then again, that's the same question we ask on 9-11. It's the same question we ask when a deranged killer begins shooting young people on a college campus. 
or on an army base or in a shopping center parking lot. You see, if there is suffering in the world, then we want to make sense out of it. If there's suffering in the world, I want to be able to reason about it. I want to have some measure of predictability for it. I want to have be able to prepare for it in some way. But it is the randomness, the apparent randomness of suffering that is so terrifying to us. Veterans of war understand what I'm talking about. Here's two soldiers and they're walking on patrol. And one of the soldiers is gunned down by the bullet of a sniper. And his buddy standing right beside him is unscathed. Or one steps on a landmine and loses his life or loses his limbs. And his friend escapes unharmed. And so it is the arbitrariness of death on the battlefield leaves many a soldier asking the same questions we ask. Why? And sometimes those of us who are unharmed feel guilty. We feel empty. Sometimes we blame ourselves. If I had only stayed longer at that particular location, then I would not have been on that road at that moment when the drunk driver came around the corner. If only I hadn't worked in that building. If only I hadn't sent my daughter to that school. We are left with a sense of helplessness about all of this. Why? Why? It makes no sense. And that's what's especially terrifying to us. So I want to share with you this morning. I want to share with you this morning two questions. And then I want to share with you two stories. And then I want to conclude by looking at two truths that we need to understand to make sense out of all of this. Two questions, two stories, two truths. Two questions. The first question that we always ask in any of these situations is the obvious, it's the obvious one. We want to know why. We want to know why. And the reason we want to know why is because we expect some measure of orderliness to life. After all, we live in the world of our Creator. God has fashioned a world in which we find order everywhere because He is a God of order. And that order is observable. If I drop an object out of my hand, you understand it's going to fall at a constant rate of speed. Why? Because there is order in this created world. I read in my Bible in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 22, I read about the order of life. Where God says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. 
Are you surprised? Are you surprised the trees are just full of blooms this time of the year? Are you surprised when the daffodils pop through the ground and the tulips come up and the, the grass begins to green again and things begin to blossom and bloom? Is anybody shocked by that? Is anybody surprised by that? That speaks, ladies and gentlemen, the fact that there is order in our world. And God made it that way. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 33 says, Our God is not a God of confusion. He is a God of order. And then we come along as human beings and we take it even to another level. We impose additional order. And that's why all of us have watches on our wrists. That's why we put clocks in every room in our house. That's why we have calendars. That's why we have appointment schedules. Because we want to order everything in our lives. We plan out the entire year where we're going to be at this particular time and on this particular day. Because we live and expect to live in a world of order and not confusion. Churches even put clocks on the wrong wall. I never have figured that out. You put a clock where only one person can see it. But we do that because we expect the preacher to stay in order and not to get out of order to finish on time. But here it is, ladies and gentlemen. Order does not always prevail, does it? Here is a family and they live a very comfortable life in a middle Tennessee town. And suddenly the rains come and the rains continue to come. And they have to live through a 200-year flood as their home is flooded. Where's the order in that? Here's a middle-aged man and he, he eats right and he exercises and he does whatever he can because he's trying to fight off heart disease that runs in his family. And then that man is diagnosed with cancer. Where's the order in that? Here's a woman who enjoys years of happy marriage and motherhood and one morning she is raped as she jogs on a pathway near her home. Where's the order in that? Here's a husband who saves up and saves up and saves up and finally takes his family on a long-awaited vacation and there's a terrible crash, the result of a drunk driver. And three members of his family lose their lives. Where's the order in that? And everyone in each of those scenarios asks the same question. Why? Do you understand, ladies and gentlemen, that is the hardest question to answer? Because more times than not, there is no answer. I think the worst part for any of us, of what we experience in our personal lives, as well as what we experience nationally, 
is the sheer sense of randomness. We wake up one day, when we wise up one day, and we realize that most of what happens to us, most of what happens in our lives is outside of our realm of control. And I'm convinced that's what scares us. Because we want to be in control. And we pretend that we are. When in reality we're not. Now I can make sense of some things. I can pick up the paper and I can read or hear a news report. And here are some climbers. And they're attempting to climb Mount Hood or Mount Shasta. And the news report comes that they've been lost in a terrible blizzard blinding storm. And finally their bodies are found and recovered, but it's too late. And I read of that story and it is a very tragic story and I hurt for those families. But I must tell you in the back part of my mind, at least to some degree, I'm thinking to myself, those people should have used a little extra precaution. And maybe it wasn't wise to be mountain climbing in the middle of the winter. And so in some way I make sense out of that kind of tragedy. Or maybe here is a policeman who is killed in the line of duty. And your heart goes out for his family and your heart goes out for his children. But yet in the back of our mind, we, we make sense of that in, 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 in the sense that there are some jobs we understand that carry more risks. But to be killed on a lonely highway by a drunk driver, to be struck down by a bullet when you sit in a college classroom, to go to a shopping center to hear your congresswoman speak, and suddenly a deranged gunman begins to open fire. Where's the answers to that? Where's the orderly pattern to that? It doesn't exist. Sometimes, ladies and gentlemen, there is no rhyme or reason. And there's no way that we're ever going to understand. The why question is the unanswerable question. But the why question is always followed up with another question. And that's the what if question. What if I had rearranged my schedule? What if I had lingered longer? What if my loved one did not go to the shopping center that morning? Do we really want the power that accompanies the what if question? Do we really want to know the future? So that we can protect not only ourselves, but we can protect our loved ones from suffering? Is that what we're wanting to know? Because if that's what we're wanting to know, then we're wanting to be God. And that option is not available to us. Isaiah 45 and verse 5, God says, I am the Lord, there is no one besides me. And so because we're not God, and because that option is not available to us, the best thing that any of us can do when it comes to the tragedies of life 
is to brace ourselves for the inevitable. Because the storms are going to come and let the roots of our faith go down deep. And when the storm arrives, we, we hang on as best we can. And we learn to replace this quest for control, this what if and if only, which focuses only on the past. And in turn, we learn to live for today and in hope of tomorrow. And we set our face to the future. That's why some people can weather storms better than others. Some people have learned to live in hope. Hope that in spite of whatever the tragedy is, that life is still worth living. And so those people turn into the wind and they face it. And even in the face of unanswered questions that they will never have the answer to. They put their trust in God. And isn't that what Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 13 tells us to do? I will put my trust in Him. And that's what all of us have to do. Because all of us face the same thing. I said there were two questions. And there are two stories. And I think these two stories give us insight on the two questions. Give us insight into suffering. The first story is that of Job. You know your Bible. In chapter 1, here is a man who is a picture of prosperity and virtue. The Bible describes Job as, as being very wealthy. He's got a large family. He's a very kind, generous, godly man. And yet Job chapter 1 does something very interesting that is seldom done. God peels away the curtain. And He gives you and me, He gives us a peek at a confrontation that takes place in a whole other realm. In Job chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, listen. <clears throat> Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Hast thou not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth thy hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand upon him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. You know, there are some scenes of Scripture I'd like a little more information. And that's one of them. It is mystifying to me. But I understand the passage to reveal that God allowed Satan to make life hard on his servant because God believed in Job. And Satan takes away his wealth. Satan takes away his family. Satan even takes away his health to the point that here is a man, ladies and gentlemen, who is left with nothing. Now, you and I can read the story and we can read in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and our heart breaks and it goes out to Job and then we can skip ahead to chapter 40 and 41 and 42 and we get the rest of the story at the end when everything begins to work itself out. And so we can make sense out of all of that. 
what we fail to realize is Job is living each page at a time just as we are. The only thing Job knows is what Job is experiencing today. And that is loss and pain and misery and heartache. And that's where we are. That's exactly where we are. We can't skip ahead in our lives any more than Job could skip ahead in his. But what is amazing to me is the longest portion of the book contains a conversation between Job and three of his friends who show up. Who come to him to aid him in his comfort, but what they end up doing is they add to his suffering. Because they try to do what you and I should never try and do. They try to answer the why question. And they had come to the conclusion in their wisdom that Job must be suffering because he must deserve what is happening. Because after all, in their imagination, only bad people suffer. And as they began to explain all of that to Job, that made no more sense to Job than that explanation would mean to you and to me. Job's perspective on his suffering finally changed when he came to grips with God's unfathomable greatness. And Job began to realize that he had been asking the wrong question all of the time. He has spent so much of his time asking the same question we ask, and that is why. And he began to realize, I've been asking the wrong question. My focus should not have been on the why, because I will never understand. My focus needed to be on the who. As in who's in control. That's why when you get over to chapter 40, and beginning in verse 1, the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to thee? I lay my hand across my mouth. In chapter 42, beginning in verse 1, Job answered the Lord and he said, I know that thou canst do all things and that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. You see, ladies and gentlemen, Job stopped asking questions when he stopped talking about God and trying to figure everything out. And he started focusing more on knowing the Almighty. And in so doing, he learned two things. He learned that behind what was to him apparent randomness of suffering, behind all of that is still the existence of the Almighty. And that God is in control even when you and I aren't in control. Even when our world is spinning out of control. God is still there. 
Job said, I had to learn that. He had to learn that the hard way, just like we do. But the other thing Job learned, he learned that in suffering, God gave into his hands tremendous power. For God gave into the hands of Job exactly what He gives into your hands and mine. He gives unto you the power to decide how you're going to respond. And Job's response, unknown to the patriarch, Job's response had repercussions in a heavenly realm that he could not see. And have you ever thought that yours do too? Job and his life and the choices he made in regard to suffering mattered to God. And so do yours. The second story is the story of Joseph. And you know the story of Joseph. It is the story of blessing and betrayal and blessing and betrayal and blessing and betrayal. He's blessed by his father. He's betrayed by his brothers. He's blessed in the household of one of Egypt's premier leaders and then betrayed by the man's wife. He is blessed in prison and then betrayed by a man who went back on his promise. And you know the story. He eventually rises to the rank of chief administrator in the land of Egypt. He oversees the storage of, of, of the grain for seven years. And then he oversees the distribution of that grain during seven years of famine. And guess who comes to buy grain? Here's the family of Joseph. And Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. And he, he finally brings his dad down into the land of Egypt and they embrace and and the, the family of Joseph moves lock, stock, and barrel to the land of Egypt. And there they live the rest of their lives happily ever after. The end to the story. But you know, the last time I checked, my Bible doesn't end at the end of Genesis. Does yours? You see, ladies and gentlemen, that's not the end of the story. Because that's not the story. There is another story behind the story. And it is a story that Joseph, like Job, could not see. That although Joseph was suffering unjustly, he didn't deserve it. But God would use that situation as a means to bring His people down into the land of Egypt where they would grow into a nation of, uh, 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 of people where they would be led to freedom by Moses, where they would be given their law, and they would be given their land, and through whom eventually one would come who would bless all of humankind. And that's you and me. And His name is Jesus. And the point of all of that is, the Job story is there, and the Joseph story is there, to remind each of us that our lives, listen to me, our lives fit into a holy plan beyond what we will ever see. 
That's why those stories are there. Job and Joseph had no idea. They had no idea that their life stories and the decisions that they would make in regard to personal suffering, they had no idea that their decisions would impact the lives of people for generations. I think of the words of Joseph in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20 when he says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God, God meant it for good. In Romans 8 and verse 28, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. God's grace and God's providence can triumph over everything. You see, ladies and gentlemen, your life has to be viewed as a giant landscape that extends far beyond what you're able to see. You and I walk around every day with blinders on. All we see is right in front of our faces. And the Job story and the Joseph story reminds us of how, how life experiences, even though they may be horrible at times, can set in motion a chain of events that will bring about good for years to come, even though right now I cannot see how. But all things are possible with Him. God can triumph over anything that happens in your life if you just let Him work. And so it is. Two questions. And so it is there are two stories And let me leave you with a couple of truths that can help us make sense, at least to a small degree, over what doesn't make any. Number one, do you understand, ladies and gentlemen, that suffering, suffering is part of the freedom of choice that God gives to every single We talk about sometimes that God has made us free moral agents. And what that means is you have a choice. You can do what is right or you can do what is wrong. And so my question is, do you like that freedom? Do you enjoy having that freedom? God doesn't make you or anybody else obey Him and He doesn't make you or anybody else disobey Him. I get weary sometimes of hearing people try and excuse their misdeeds by saying in regard to the evil or the bad things that they do, well, why are you picking on me? I'm only human. As if that excuses our bad choices. I want to tell you something. It's just as human to do right as it is human to do wrong. Nobody makes you do wrong. You make that decision and you make that choice. But hear me. God gives to every person that choice. God doesn't make you treat other people the way way you should. God doesn't make you make good choices. You're free to choose. And so is everybody. And some people, because God gives to all of us the freedom of choice, some people make bad choices. Some people make very bad choices. Some people make choices that affect others in very tragic ways. 
But because some people make bad choices. Do you want God to take away that right from everybody? And do you want God to take away that right from you? When God gave man the freedom of choice, there would be suffering. Because some people would make the bad choices. Secondly, suffering is no respecter of persons. The question we ask always is, why me? Why me? When the better question should be, Why not me? What's so special about me that I would expect God to deliver my life from every kind of loss and pain and heartache? If you stop and think about that a little bit, the very thought, ladies and gentlemen, approaches arrogance. Because what we're saying to God is, God, if you loved me, you would give me the perfect life. Who do we think we are? Now we can argue and say that people don't deserve all of, all of this pain and people don't deserve all of this suffering. And nobody said they did. There have been times in my life and yours when we have had to endure the bad that we did not deserve. But there have been plenty of times, and we forget about these, When we got the good, folks, we didn't deserve that either. Isn't that what Job said to Mrs. Job in chapter 2 and verse 10? Shall we indeed accept good from the hand of God and not accept adversity? You see, a world of fairness may give us everything we want. But a world of God's grace will in the end give us more than any of us ever deserve. So where is the sense in all of this? Where is the sense in senseless tragedy? Well, I don't have the answers. And I don't know anybody that does. And Frankly, when I come across somebody who thinks they have all of the answers, that tells me they don't. And I tell you where all of us are in regard to these issues. We're exactly where Job was when you get to the end of the book after he tried to figure everything out and he gets to the end of the book and he stands in the presence of God and he starts to open his mouth and he stops and he says, I am insignificant. He said, I lay my hand across my mouth. And that's where all of us are. I hope something has been said this morning to give you a little thought, to give you a little insight into the world in which we live because it's not always an easy world and there's not always easy answers to all the questions. But I know one thing. I cannot allow, cannot allow myself to lose my faith even when things happen that I don't understand why.